Welcome back, Eigen people. So, guys, make sure to like, share, comment, subscribe. If you have not done so already, check out the website, eigenbros.com. Even though we're having little issues right now because I just got my Gmail back. But nice. it's not fully finished yet uh, mm-hmm. with the uh, website updates, but it will be back soon. Check out um, Eigenbros on Instagram, Eigenbros on Twitter, Eigenbros2 on TikTok. And then also, guys, patrons, thank you guys as always. We greatly appreciate you, you know, supporting the channel. Keep it strong with us, mm-hmm. you know, having fun with us in the Discord. You know, guys, if you want to make sure, if you want to also uh, check out the Patreon, check out patreon.com slash Eigenbros. I'm thinking check out a lot, huh? Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's patreon.com slash Eigenbros. Meanwhile, we'll do at least a 30-minute podcast there every week, so. So make sure you um, take a look at that. I'm trying to say something. Other Examine it. Out. Examine it. Observe it. <laughs> yeah, you just know, $1 minimum is all we ask, but you yeah. guys can get full access. Visit patreon.com slash Bros for more info. <laughs> Thank you, Juan. And your yeah. money. <laughs> and your money, please. Yes. Um, no, today we have, uh, We I, I kind of wanted to I present this topic this week called mm-hmm. about the Solvay Conference. S-O-L-V. It's pronounced Solve. Solve. I don't know. You tell I don't me even know the, what that you're is. You're the foreign language guy. Yeah, but that's like a weird one, man. I don't even know what the origin of that. I know it's in Brussels, which is mm-hmm. Belgium, which is French. Yeah. But I never seen a French word that looked like that. Solve. Yeah. Um, I guess S O L V A Y. Yeah. E U I. A Y. I think. A-Y. Yeah. Well, the thing is, uh, Solve. For those of you that don't know, it's uh, Solve conferences on physics. Mm-hmm. Not really something that you hear about a lot nowadays. Um, yeah, you don't. No. I wonder why. I guess APS took that over. Huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they kind of put themselves at the top here. Right. But uh, The modern incantation. Yeah. the the Like to kind of give you a, uh, to the folks, a synopsis of, you know, for those of you that don't know what the Solvay Conference is, it used to be this pinnacle of scientific conversations uh, um more, more like colloquiums centered around the where where like a lot of the burgeoning fields in physics are going. Mm-hmm. The big problems at the time. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm here at the uh, PSL page. It's called the University PSL. It's of Université Paris. Um, kind of give you an introduction. The early Solvay conferences on physics played a significant role in the evolution of physics in the 20th century. They owe their existence to the generous patronage of the Belgian chemist Ernest Solvay, a lover of science, who co-founded the Solvay Chemical Company with his brother in 1863. Um, and yeah, just um, this, for, for, like, why is this important? Um, well, historically, some of the, like, basically the, the most famous one, uh, most famous conference was in uh, 1920, what is it, 27? Yeah. That's the fifth Solvay conference. That's the one with the big heavy hitters. You've probably seen the classic picture. You know, it's got like Einstein, Rutherford, Bohr, Curie, Heisenberg, Dirac. I mean, it's got like pretty much all the heavy hitters of the day. Yeah, it's interesting that they don't really have, you don't really have those kind of conversations anymore or like maybe conferences like that where it's like heavy hitters of the day yeah go and congregate and talk and well maybe they um, do maybe it's just APS now I don't know I don't think so I don't think it's like here's a photo of all the people that are really important in the field today 
Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, half how the are smartest we people know? in the maybe room. Maybe they are. And we just oh, maybe they are, realize. and we're just pushed out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like you don't really know. I mean, actually, yeah, I don't even know who the smartest people would be of today. I mean, I guess you got classics like Ed Witten or um, C.N. Yang, maybe. I don't Maldesena. even know if he's a physicist. Yeah, Maldesena, Nimar Kanye Ahmed. Um, I mean, go to the Caltech, go to like Caltech's website or University of. Uh, what is it called? Princeton's uh, Institute of Advanced Studies. Yeah. I mean, those places are usually high-strung. MIT, I mean, high-strung mm-hmm. uh, academics um, who are working on stuff that's like, you know. Leading, uh, leading, leading edge. edge. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess also it's a little bit different these days because it seems a little bit less um, lone gunslinger, right? we got a lot of collaborative right. projects, you know, yeah. group efforts. And then a lot of the theory stuff is just so heady that it's like, these guys, are they just wasting their time inventing new mathematics? <laughs> <laughs> I say that uh, jokingly, because yeah. of course, math is never really a waste of time, but no. you know, we're in the realm of like string theory, where people aren't really even sure if it's something to invest your time in, so mm-hmm. it's like, you know, who do you consider the smartest right. guys of gals of today in physics? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, well, I kind of wanted to read the sub, the sub, uh, what, is, what would I call this? Um, just a little opening paragraph for some of you folks that uh, kind of need some context here. Um, you know, in the 19th century, we had this big um, deviation from classical mechanics, um, which was the black body radiation problem, um, which is. Uh, or quantizing black body theory uh, with Max Planck uh, in early 1900s, um, where you needed to solve the black body catastrophe thing, where essentially the data that was the well current models at the time could not account for what was being observed in the experimental data for black body uh, radiation. Did this have to do with the spectra? Yeah, the spectra. Okay, yeah, the yeah. hydrogen spectra. No. Okay. It's different. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit less familiar with this because I didn't look at it recently. Mm-hmm. I know there's the ultraviolet catastrophe. Yeah, that's I, what it is. Yeah. Okay, yeah. which I am actually kind of drawing a blank what it is now. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Professor Dave. We know that the classical physics of Newton and Pals reigned supreme for a few centuries. So what were the events that finally exposed its limitations? What was the first thing that suggested there was more to the universe than we had previously thought? This seismic shift was initiated in 1901 when Max Planck solved something called the ultraviolet catastrophe. The problem went like this. Certain objects are called black bodies because they emit electromagnetic radiation of all wavelengths. The sun is an example of such an object and we can take a look at the distribution of the wavelengths of light that we receive from the sun. Most of it is in the visible spectrum, which is why our eyesight evolved to pick up this kind of light. But we also receive light on either side in the UV portion as well as infrared and beyond. A hot piece of metal will also do this, and this was the way we studied black bodies at the time, noting that the distribution depends not at all on the material, but only on temperature, with the particular wavelength that is emitted with maximum intensity shifting left as temperature increases. This maximum will move into the visible spectrum at around 4,000 Kelvin and above. 
This is why very hot objects appear to glow, like a hot oven, light bulb filament, or the sun and other stars, because objects at these temperatures emit a lot of visible light, as opposed to something like the human body, which at around 310 Kelvin emits essentially no visible light, which is why we can't see each other in the dark. The problem with the black body spectrum was that classical electromagnetism could not account for it. Mathematical models attempting to produce these distributions were able to fit the data for the longer wavelengths, but they did not predict that the intensity would dip down to the left for the UV portion of the spectrum, as experimental data illustrated. Instead, the math predicted that the intensity would continue to increase as the wavelength decreased and become infinitely large as the wavelength approached zero. Of course, we know that this can't be true, otherwise every time you use the oven you would get blasted with UV radiation. This contradiction was dubbed somewhat dramatically the ultraviolet catastrophe. In science, if a theory does not accurately align with observations of reality, it must be revised. And so, we realized that classical electromagnetism, as powerful as it is, must have some kind of limitations in its ability to describe light and energy. As we said, Max Planck solved this problem, and he did so by introducing a concept called quantization. We know from classical physics that heat is just the transfer of kinetic energy from one place to another. In the case of a piece of solid hot metal, that kinetic energy takes the form of atomic vibrations, or oscillations. These vibrations are what generate the light we see in the black body spectrum. Planck proposed that the vibrational energies of these atoms, and by extension, the energies of the electromagnetic waves emitted by these atoms, must be quantized, meaning that rather than being able to take on any value from a continuous series, they can only possess specific discrete values from a set of accepted values. In this way, he developed this expression for black body radiation, where energy is equal to n, which can be any integer, times h, a term we call Planck's constant, equal to 6.626 times 10 to the negative 34 joules seconds, times f, the frequency of radiation. The n value is what results in quantization, as it can only be an integer and not any fraction or decimal in between, meaning that the resulting energies will also comprise a set of allowed values, with anything in between being forbidden. This application of quantization and the accompanying Planck's constant were developed in ad hoc manner, meaning that they were simply proposed for practical purposes, but they allowed for the accurate prediction of the true distribution of black body radiation at all wavelengths, which meant that this constant was more than a mathematical fluke, but a clue as to the fundamental nature of reality. And the fact that Planck's constant is so incredibly small explains why the notion of quantization of energy had not cropped up before. Because it shows that energy is quantized on such an incredibly small scale that the gradations between the allowed values are utterly minuscule, so as to appear non-existent to any measuring apparatus. Energy appears to be continuous to macroscopic beings, such as humans, 
but on the fundamental level, it is indeed quantized, even though this conclusion was so strange that most scientists of the time, including Planck, couldn't believe that it had actual concrete physical meaning. This was the first time that quantization had solved such a big problem in physics, but it wouldn't be the last. Okay, so I think that kind of captures uh, the what, essence. The essence of uh, what the hell that you know the the black body problem, right? Kind of illustrated. Yeah, pretty interesting. Um, I still didn't get what spectral radiance was, but <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> it at least explained to... the problem of the mismatch between the classical theory versus the quantum theory. Yeah, because like that graph is kind of interesting. On the y-axis, it's essentially intensity. Yeah, okay, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So intensity makes more sense. It's yeah. easier to digest because that's just um, like what? Something per area. It's like the, you just imagine a, a yeah. light, how bright something is yeah. over a certain area. So spectral intensity distribution of Planck's Bob, uh, it's a function of wavelength for different temperatures. So you'll see multiple mm -hmm. curves and they'll have different different behaviors at different right. temperatures, but it's plotted against intensity. all these Gaussian-looking curves, kind of. Yeah, and what they found was that as you approach the visible spectrum, you get peaks, mm -hmm. you know, but the classical theory of E&M couldn't account for this. Right, right. Until Planck came in, ham-fisted his, <laughs> uh, his E equals NH bar or NH omega, I mean, uh, frequency. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. F or nu sometimes. Sure. Um, and funny enough, uh, Planck himself, as the video states, uh, found the concept challenging and defied contemporaneous scientific understanding. In 1908, this Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences refused to award him the Nobel Prize in physics <laughs> on the grounds that his theory was based on, quote unquote, an unacceptable hypothesis. <laughs> Just cause isn't good enough for the committee. <laughs> Hey, it fits the data. <laughs> Not good enough. Uh, hey, man, that's real life. <laughs> what do you mean? You know, I'm just like Plank did the right thing to me. If it matches, if you just matched it up, you got the experimental data, you threw something in there, mm. it works. Sometimes that's how it goes, man. That's real life. You got to just throw some things in there sometimes. Schrodinger yep. just made up the Schrodinger equation just because, you know, if it fit. It, it, it made sense, I think, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it fit the data. Exactly. So sometimes you got to do that stuff. This is what they don't teach you. Yeah, and it says here, even though even though they poo pooed Max Planck, um, Einstein's work on the photoelectric effect was published in 1905. Mm -hmm. So just a couple years before that, more Einstein's own uh, inner workings of the stuff came out. Right. So, well, Einstein's a king of elegant like conceptions. So mm -hmm. definitely uh, well deserved. No, well, the thing is with survey, uh, Solvay did was that he accepted Nernst's proposal um, and convened the first Solvay conference in Brussels in 1911. The conference attended by 18 of the world's leading physicists, uh, most of whom were already or would become Nobel laureates, including Albert Einstein, Henry Poincaré, Paul Langevin, Hendrik Lorentz, Max Planck, Walter Nernst, Maurice de Broglie, Ernest Rutherford, Hake Ons, Kammerling Ons, Ons, L N N E S, Marcel Bruyn, Jean Perrin, and one woman, Marie Curie. Unlike earlier international physics conventions, um, the 
Paris Exposition Universe of 1900 and the St. Louis World's Fair primarily deliver reports on successful solutions to scientific questions. The Solvay Conference was conceived as an invitation-only symposium, bringing together a limited number of recognized specialists to debate specific theme defined by an international scientific committee mm-hmm. uh, to contribute to solving unusually difficult scientific problems. So in preparation for the conference, a dozen scientific papers by participants were sent ahead to all invitees. So the, the interesting thing about this is that, you know, this was the first opportunity that people had that, that we that Solvay kind of brought together a lot of important minds. I, I think mm-hmm. his his him being a lover of science, he helped bring a bunch of people that he thought were leading experts. Yeah, yeah. Which was kind of not really, which was not, he he was like the Joe Rogan of the time. I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, he was, what's the best way to put it? Like he was just kind of. Maybe the Lex Friedman. Yeah, maybe the Lex Friedman. (laughs) No, he just brought a bunch of people together to try to solve, um, well, try to bring light uh, or formalize. Difficult problems. Quantum, essentially quantum theory was in its infancy. Yeah. And right, right. have them debated out, have have a safe space for people to really just... Right. You know. Well, I think they do do that stuff nowadays. I mean, I've seen clips of uh, Ravelli like, yelling at people about loop quantum gravity. And, uh, oh, is he? Yeah, but I don't really know what the context was. I saw mm-hmm. it so long ago before I was really that deep into physics. But mm-hmm. um, I think they have some versions of it, maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to say this, like, it was interesting because when I was, you know, in, in reading about this, uh, the Solvay Conference of 1911, some people, some of the most leading minds, like Poincaré, it'd be the first time that they'd ever thought about quantum theory. Right, right. So, like, for instance, like, Poincaré from the 1911 Solvay uh, Conference, Poincaré returned from the conference convinced by the quantum theory of energy, and Louis de Broglie was introduced to quantum theory for the first time. As his personal notes attest, setting the stage for his future groundbreaking contributions in the field. So, like, you know what I mean? It was it was the first time that you see De Broglie. De Broglie is like, you know, one of the most famous equations, right? That right. we use all the time, right? It's what um, the E equals uh, H C over lambda. Is that yeah, 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 yeah. How basically anything you can have. Well, what was it? It's well, it's basically that everything has a wave property right. to it. So everything has a wave function. Yeah. And uh and and the funny thing was that this was so controversial that they almost denied him his PhD. I remember reading about this. <laughs> Cuz there's like, wow, how could you say this? Right, right. Um they were almost going to deny him. I mean, De Broglie was kind of an interesting guy because he was a well, he was a wealthy guy. Mm-hmm. And he had like he sort of paid for his education privately and he was like kind of entering physics as a hobby. And he was just like, I wonder what all these people are talking about. And you're just like, <laughs> this stuff seems interesting. Right. Um, but the interesting thing is that, um, I mean, they, they have excerpts and stuff about the notes and what people thought about the uh, the conference after the fact. Um, but, uh, but essentially, so after the conference, you know, people were just like, people were motivated to keep developing quantum theory mm-hmm. and you know you're looking at uh if you're looking ahead you're like how do we get from this to the 1927 the fifth the, the all-star conference. version yeah, of yeah. the solvay conference right um 
Um, but essentially, the debate surrounding this was kind of was kind of pushed off because right after that, the context of of the times of you know the First World War happened in 1914, um, mm-hmm. and the institute had to essentially suspend any activities, and uh, there was a bunch of scientists that had to flee. Um, right, right. Um, and basically, the second the 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 Solvay people weren't able to continue the conference until 1919. Mm-hmm. So it, there was like a huge gap of time post-war. Um, and in fact, the third conference took place in 1921 after the liberation of Belgium. Um, so in some sense, like the First World War kind of pushed back um, the progress that could have been done by quantum theory. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um so but but the funny thing is that the the third conference centered around the topic that centered around was atoms and electrons and this was in mm-hmm. 1921 and if you remember back to what was what was the first uh do you remember the first study they did on the electron the first ever what was it the uh what was it the uh there was one famous study by some guy named Gold something Oh, you did. mean Rutherford, the gold Rutherford. foil experiment? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was like the most famous one, right? That, that I remember the. Um, it, it's one of the most famous ones because it's the one I think that actually enlightened people to understanding the atom was composed of a positive nucleus, um, with negative charged particles surrounding it. I believe. Well, let me think. What did they know from that one? So they knew that when they strike it, they would strike the um. I forget even what po- what charge they struck the atom with. Yeah, because well, the whole the whole thing with Rutherford is they built an atomic mo- he, the Rutherford model of the atom, right? Yeah, where he had the he had the nuclear he had the Rutherford atomic model of the nuclear atom or the planetary model of the atom. Yeah, it proposed he proposed this in 1911. Funny enough, mm-hmm. um, and it Was described that actually the one that discovered the electron. Though I'm not sure of that I think. Yeah, I think I think it I does because I know they discovered the positively charged nucleus from right. that one. But uh, the the funny thing is the model describes the atom as a tiny dense positively charged core like you're saying. Yeah. In a, in in a nucleus in which all mass is concentrated around these light negative constituents called electrons. Okay. Um but did they find electrons before that in the other previous model potentially? Well, the other model that was competing at the time was the um, was a sort of pudding model. The plum pudding model. Okay. Yeah. I oh, think where it was, it was like there were electrons embedded into a positive. Yeah, that was a plum ch- pudding, or <laughs> they're putting a po- so the so the electrons were the plums, and then the pudding was the positive nucleus. Yeah, and this this plum pudding model is uh, is wrong. Cor- yeah, according to the 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 notes here, it's J J Thompson. Yeah, that makes uh, plum sense. pudding model. Right. Um. So yeah. it, it set aside this, like, it kind of looked at, and, and that's kind of the most modern picture. If you look at pictures of in your textbooks, the, the no, the pudding. Rutherford one is, is the one that the teachers show you in textbooks. You know what I mean? Well, kind of, no, because I think the Rutherford one is even less so because they didn't even know about neutrons back then. So the, oh, Rutherford, the Rutherford was just straight up a big chunk of positive charge. Nobody even considered a neutron, right? Because the neutrons weren't even detectable at that time, really. <laughs> so... The most modern one had to be one that that's like the um, 
that includes the neutrons amount. Mm-hmm. The one that they consider in textbooks is the they just call it I guess the um, the atomic model the the uh, yeah the atomic model or the, maybe the solar system model or something yeah well that's they're saying they give credit to him they're giving credit to him okay I don't know if I would though because he didn't yeah. have the neutron at that time okay well I would say this but for, maybe that's just me I'm for those of you ignorance. for those of you that uh, <laughs> that kind of want a picture I'll put, go ahead and put a picture for the video. But here. of course, the most modern incarnation is the uh, Schrodinger model, right? Yes, yes. So that's the one that they don't even show you in school because yeah. it's too, it's just too advanced, it's too woke for you. It's <laughs> gonna break your, it's gonna break your poor little brain, right? They won't even mention that in in high school. They're like, they can't handle that yet. The kid, the kids are not ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, no. Well, the funny thing is, um, the Thompson model, the atom. Uh, it, it described it as a uniformly distributed substance. It's kind of like this solid mm-hmm. core stuff. But however, the Thompson model, he would send alpha particles in a beam that were scattered by large angles after striking a gold foil while most pass completely through. So Rutherford was able to say that the gold's uh, atomic mass must be concentrated in a tiny little nucleus. Mm-hmm. So at the time, this whole conversation about, um, you know, sort of centered around atoms and electrons trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Like, mm-hmm. um, what did he hit, shoot it with? Aluminum particles? Alpha particles. Oh, alpha I don't particles. know. I don't know from, I don't know where I wonder the source how they got was. alpha particles back then though, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Cause that's like a form of radiation that they weren't, I don't even, I didn't think they were even privy to. What year was it? <laughs> 1911 because Marie Curie was doing the radiation stuff and I thought she was on that trail of even knowing what radiation was because they didn't even know what radiation was yeah they were like oh I'm getting sick oh but you know what it is it's probably just because an alpha particle is just helium Oh, I see. They're just shooting... Just helium, I guess. But shooting helium like, How did they harness helium back then? <laughs> we should really go in depth one day of like how they did these like how legit... Did these bra- groundbreaking... Uh, right. Because it sounds so simple in theory, but then you're like, wait a minute, how the hell do they even how the hell think did they to get do it? that? Yeah, like how, did you, how do you shoot helium? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, like the funny thing was that how, how incredible that the study was um, right. just in investigating the atom in these early, early, early days. Mm-hmm. Rutherford, Rutherford basically, he was trying to analogize to people what this meant or what the atom looked like. And he said, it's almost as incredible as if you fired a 15 inch shell at a piece of tissue paper and it came back and hit you um, wow. to try to think about the space or, or the scale of, of what the, the atom looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, However, the the Rutherford uh, the Rutherford they model paper back then. <laughs> the Ruther, <laughs> it was it was being rationed for wartime. Um, so the Rutherford model itself was superseded a few years um, by the Bohr atomic model, mm. which actually incorporated some early quantum theory. Yeah, the Bohr model. That's the one. That's the one they show you in textbooks, because that's mm. when he quantized the energy levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the electron orbitals, right? Yeah. That's the modern one. That's the modern quote-unquote one that they're showing in your high school. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the one that you would consider like the solar system model. I right. Believe. It's sort of like a mix of solar system slash... Um, I don't even know what solar system... It's just it's kind of like orbiting, around, like, yeah. and it's a bad picture. It's yeah. But that's the Bohr model, I think, isn't it? Right, right, right. It's yeah. A, yeah, it incorporates that. Um, 
because Bohr essentially basically was like looked at the the Rutherford model and was like, well, let me quantize the energies. Right, right. And then you had this problem of like, well, you would the atom, you know, why don't the electrons just dissipate? Yeah, so right. you're saying why did he want to quantize the energy levels well, he, of the right, electrons? Yeah. And the yeah. reasoning was because if you have electrons just orbiting around a nucleus, they're going to lose energy, right? Because you mm-hmm. can think about it just like how the space station is. The space station orbiting around the Earth, eventually gravity is going to pull it towards the center. The only mm-hmm. reason it actually stays up, you got to realize, is because they give it a boost every now and then to keep it in orbit. Or else it's eventually going to decay. Because you can imagine like even though space has no... No air. friction or air, yeah, right? Yeah, it yeah. still is going to have friction to where it's going to start to slowly fall in. Yeah. You know, there's no such thing as completely frictionless unless you have a complete vacuum, which is very hard to achieve. Mm-hmm. If not poss- if not impossible, I'm not even sure. But, um, yeah, so eventually those electrons should decay into the nucleus, but that doesn't happen. So then the only explanation was Borges was like, fuck it. It's quantized. <laughs> so it just doesn't fall because it doesn't fall. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let me let me just kind of add and continue on here for the building up to the, the, the mm-hmm. famous Solvay. The, the third Solvay conference, um, you know, like I was saying, it was dedicated to atoms and electrons. So you can kind of get this sense of like where quantum theory was. You're, you know, you have the Rutherford model that's kind of already proceed uh, – superseded the the thompson model mm-hmm. so you're kind of getting more resolution on 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 what what the hell's going on but you know you get these quantizations how do you fit that you know Bohr mm-hmm. comes in in this so in april 1921 there was some politics going on <laughs> with the world war stuff and <laughs> there was a boycott of german intellectuals right at right. this at this conference they were trying to cancel Germans. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but it was uh, a little problematic. <laughs> well, let me just say that they, the the boycott of German intellectuals followed the publication of what, what was called at the time the Manifesto of '93, whatever, mm-hmm. resulted in the exclusion of conference. Some of the conference's most brilliant, um, uh, 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 invited people. Mm-hmm. Um, Einstein being one of these people. He was a German, uh, Jewish German. Um, man, mm-hmm. uh, outspoken pacifist, all this stuff. He did not attend the conference, but he did um, follow up in the proceedings, like just kind of written, written, uh, responding to what was being uh, mm-hmm. discussed at the conferences. Neil Bohr was also absent, but he was sick or something. Um, but he covered the main points in his 1913 paper um, when he was talking about the Bohr, his Bohr model. Right. Um, Albert Mil- Mick- Michelson was there. Robert Milliken was there in the third one. Um, and it marked a divide. Uh, what some people would say that it marked. Basically, it, it gave a clear picture of of quantum mechanics. Because mm-hmm. before that, we were all we we're all like um, it gave them direction. Yeah. 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 I guess because you're saying from the first conference, the whole black body problem basically quantizing right quantizing for the first first time time, yeah and then you know quantizing energy for the first time and then you know this new problem of you know figuring out what the hell is going on with the atom and then Bohr eventually quantizing the energy levels of Mm. the electron they're starting to see this pattern of quantization occurring but even then i think the Bohr model fails right in what sense the, the limitations of the Bohr model in that 
Well, I think the Bohr model failed more as we delve into quantum, right? Mm -hmm. Because it didn't account for some of the parts like the Schrodinger model is the most advanced one, right? right. Because that has to do with all the probability, um, uh, what do you call them? The probability solutions, I guess, for like the hydrogen atom. Mm -hmm. You can see that all these energy levels have these specific probability distributions, which yeah. are not nearly, um, there's. it's not nearly as detailed in the Bohr model. It doesn't show no. all that. Yeah, doesn't show those excited states and those different transitions of probability that it has. Yeah. And there's no mention of even a wave function in the Bohr model, right? No, no. It's very, very simplified. Very saying, simple. Yeah, it's just saying energy levels, quantum, uh, I mean, the electron energy level, energy shells, they're quantized. That's it. Yeah. Just to get around the problem. Well, of, that's like a very helium model, or what is the, 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 the basic... Oh, like heliocentric or something? No, the, ba the basic helium model where it's like one one proton, one electron... And, oh, well, uh, hydrogen. Well, not sorry, even sorry. because the hydrogen one is is complicated, right? The yeah, hydrogen, it's a lot more complicated. The hydrogen one, that's only one proton and one electron, right? And that's the yeah. one that is like that you see the pictures of mm, of yeah, all yeah. these crazy like three D three D models of these dumbbells and whatnot, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, showing those uh, wave function, uh, the, yeah, those wave function distributions for the electrons. Yeah. So it's like. Yeah, even that. It's just like it's even simpler than that. Right? Yeah, it's just yeah. a very simplified model. Well, I do want to talk about the fourth conference. So the fourth conference was took place in 1924. I, I think so. For context, historically at the time, you know, we just got a world war, world World War One ended. I think it lasted for five years, six years. Don't look at me. <laughs> I mean, I played a lot of Call of Duty, but yeah. I don't remember dates. <laughs> but um, but there's still a lot of stress around like German intellectuals and stuff. Um, and in 1924, it was still it, there was still this um, this kind of side eyeing, this kind of um, sort of barring of of German German scientists being mm -hmm. being part of any. Basically, don't let them, don't leave them alone. In the <laughs> right. <laughs> they might plan some really heinous stuff. But anyway, the fourth Solvay Conference on Physics was devoted to electrical conductivity on metals and related problems. And this was in 1924, mm. two years after Ernest uh, well, Solvay's death. But, um, so, but this time there was 13, uh, well, there's participants from 13 countries um, but Germany was still not allowed to go. <laughs> Damn. Germany, get your shit together, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, Einstein famously refused to attend. Like, he was just mm -hmm. like, I'm not going to go uh, if you keep basically canceling my fellow Germans. Right, right. He's like, uh, I'm not going to go if my German colleagues are barred from going. Mm -hmm. um, it's not right for me to take part in the Soviet conference because of my German colleagues being excluded. He said... This, this is quoting him. In my opinion, it's not right to bring politics into scientific matters, mm -hmm. nor should individuals be held responsible for the government of the country to which they happen to belong. Um, yeah. Do you agree with Einstein on that? Oh, man. What a it's kind of a he went out on the limb here. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been a real controversial take. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, I think Einstein's heart's in the good place. But like when you are potentially creating atom bombs and new weapons. <laughs> you know, the smartest guys are going to be leading the charge, potentially, right? The Ma yeah. Manhattan Project is a, is a real thing. 
Right. And I think this is the, the reason why the Soviet con- conference is interesting in the proceedings. It's just because the politics, the intersection of politics and science at the time was probably greater than any other time in the, in the world. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, you're talking about, like you're saying, a, a development of basically very advanced weaponry that only comes through the knowledge of science. Um, mm. And I think, I think maybe I wouldn't say he's wrong. I think ultimately he's he's correct in his like principled response. But I think in the context of the time, it would make sense to be like we can't we can't take anyone for 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 good measure. We can't really allow it. <laughs> you know the optics of it are bad. Like if we allow <laughs> Germans to come and talk, um, I don't know. How, how do you how do you feel about it? Yeah, I think it's like that's the shitty thing about war. It's like, even though they're not your enemies, like Einstein, I'm sure no one was an enemy of Einstein mm-hmm. in that circle. Well, I won't say no one, but I'm sure, you know, he's a respected guy. Yeah. Scientists are kind of in this weird spot where we, politics kinds of shows up on our doorstep. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, you got to, at the end of the day, realize that, yeah, you are a part of a nation, a nation's war. Mm-hmm. And then you do get stuck in these awkward situations where mm-hmm. you have to you have to now choose a side. Yeah. You know, it's like being in prison, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you may be a guy who grew up in, you know, a particular place, you know, let's say you were mm-hmm. a black dude who grew up in the suburbs, but in yeah. prison, you're going to have to go with the black team or whatnot. <laughs> yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like you, it forces your hand just because that's just what it is. Yeah. And the tribal stuff, it's the tribalism. Yeah. And I mean, like, and the funny thing, and this is kind of what led to the most famous Solvay conference, because it wasn't until the Ger- Germany officially joined the League of Nations, um, which I think preceded the United Nations. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until basically Germany was like, all right, we'll, 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 we'll calm down and set aside our racial prejudices and stuff um, that they were allowed again to participate in European or, or sort of intellectual circles and, and, and conversations. Mm-hmm. And that's when the big dogs came out. So, oh, yeah, so yeah, fast yeah. forward to 1927, you know, um, you know, cause, cause you know, from 24 to 27 this is MJ era. Uh, <laughs> right, 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 right. So, so just to know. give you, I mean, just to give you some context too, I mean, World War II happened. Um, it happened during, Whoa, what the hell? Sorry. I'm trying to look up the dates here. Mm-hmm. I'm not a history buff, no. So I can't really say. But oh, sorry, World War One, not World War Two. What the fuck? Yeah, World thinking? War Two is forties. Forties, yeah. So World War One was 1914 to 1918, but there was still a lot of animosity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Towards Germans and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I guess right. But they were so. beaten down, I guess, at this point. So they were like, <laughs> ah, you guys can come back. <laughs> yeah, and in the 1920s, I think. Uh, um, Hitler especially I think he was in jail at the time oh was he he was writing his little books and no, stuff. he was he was building his hatred he's <laughs> <laughs> like they, they put me in jail <laughs> um, no but uh, <clears throat> the fifth Solvay conference in physics held in 1927 is the most important conference um, prior to World War II the German scientists were again allowed and welcome and Einstein had been appointed the international scientific he'd been appointed uh, sort of the head of the international scientific committee um, 
So the committee was the scene of fire, fierce controversy between prominent physicists, including Bohr and Einstein, on questions of quantum mechanics, and specifically the Copenhagen interpretation. Um, and it's still talked about to this day because that's kind of where they hammered out how you should interpret quantum mechanics. Right, right. Yeah. It's kind of the safe way, if you will. What do you mean? Because Copenhagen doesn't really try to make too many assumptions, right? Mm -hmm. They try to really stick with, you know, what the math is saying mm -hmm. and trying not to assert too much language onto it. Interpretation. Right. It's yeah. kind of like the safe way to talk about quantum without getting too much into, like, quantum ideology, if you want to say. Yeah. Like, because then the, for instance, the um, many worlds might be, like, saying, oh, there is, it kind of makes a stronger statement that, there is another timeline or something that exists, mm -hmm. which is like, eh, how can you say that really? Right. Just as, as an example. Yeah. So, excuse me. The topic in 1927, which was the most, the most famous one, was electrons and photons. And this was, this was probably the most heady one, right? Because now you're talking about, you know, the the quantization of things that have mass and things that don't have mass. Mm. Like, how do you treat how do you treat these two things that are quantized particles? They're trying to make sense of it, and like, um, I don't know, just just you had some incredible conversations here, and I, I wanted to go down the list of the people that are here. All right. Um, I think you get the same list I got. And the right. 19. No, I don't actually. Do you have your list pulled yeah, up? Yeah, you want me to pull yeah, it up? Yeah, yeah. The 1927, the most famous Solvay. Yeah, so I'll just read off the names. I mean, there's some I didn't recognize on there, but I mean, it's crazy the number of people yeah, on this yeah, list. Yeah, You're yeah. like, damn, this is like everybody in every textbook I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so here we go. It says 17 of the 29 attendees were or became Nobel Prize winners. So that that's like right 50% there. of it's, it's like over you, 50%. When you go into a lecture hall and you're, it's the opposite of what your professors tell you. What do you One mean? look at you look at a look at look at both ways, you know. <laughs> right, like the people around you will be gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. These this people, is the exact opposite. These people will be gone. <laughs> it's like yeah. look around you, these people here in the Solvay conference, you're going right. to be somebody's. <laughs> Or these people will be your superiors. Right. <laughs> All right. So it says we got August Picard. I don't think oh, from, uh, to, uh, from Star Trek. <laughs> I don't think this is the TNG. <laughs> I believe that was. Um, oh, what was Picard's first name? Alfred. No, he's French. Jean Luc. Jean Luc. Yeah. And then we have Emile Henriot. Then we have Paul Ehrenfest, who is a name that's familiar. Yep. Edward Hertzen, not familiar with him. Then we had Theophile de Donder, not familiar. Erwin Schrödinger, mm -hmm. of course. Classic. Jules Emile Verschaffelt. Wolfgang Great. Pauli. You know, that's branding, really, what it comes down to. Some of these guys with difficult <laughs> names. <laughs> they need better names, you think? Yeah, yeah. They need better scientific <laughs> names. Yeah, like Jimmy Neutron. <laughs> I mean, that guy's born to be a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> we got Wolfgang Pauli, mm -hmm. Werner Heisenberg, Sir Ralph Howard Fowler. Nice. Um, Leon Nicholas Brion. 
Nice. So that's Brion Zones. Nice. Peter Dubai, Dubai Energies. Martin Knudsen. William Lawrence Bragg, Bragg Diffraction. Mm-hmm. Henrik Kramers. Kramers. I think he rule. said the N word. They banned him. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they banned him from the conference. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, Kramers rule. Kramers rule. You know one. What is that one? Yeah, Kramers rule. Um, you're not allowed to go into comedy shows <laughs> uh, with any preconceived, maybe prejudices. No, Kramer's rule is a, um, it, it, it's a, it's something that's in quantum mechanics that we use. Yes. Yeah, it is, is it CR? Or, it's CR, right? Can't remember. This guy's K. KR. Oh, this guy's K? Yeah. Oh, okay. I can read his profile. So it says, Kramer's was the first foreign scholar to ske- seek out Niels Bohr. He became his assistant and helped develop what became known as Bohr's Institute, where he worked on dispersion theory. Oh, so maybe he's related to Dubai somehow? Yeah, Kramer's... Okay, yeah, so I remember Kramer's in quantum mechanics. It's the Kramer's degeneracy theorem. states that for every energy eigenstate of a time-reversal symmetric system, um, there's at least one eigenstate with the same energy. In other words, every energy level is at least doubly degenerate if it has half energy spin. Hmm. This is H.A. Kramer. This is, yeah, Hendrick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. That's what's up. Big head guys. We got Paul Dirac. Yep. Arthur Holly Compton. Compton, Compton scattering. scattering. Of course, I didn't even say anything about Dirac because, I mean, if yeah. you don't know Dirac, why the fuck are you here? <laughs> <laughs> Louis Dubroy. Mm-hmm. Classic. Max Born. Born's, Born's rule. rule. We got Irving Langmuir. Who I've heard, Langmuir is a familiar name. Yeah, it is. Let me see. He says, he was an American chemist and physicist. His most noted publication was the famous 1919 article, The Arrangement of Electrons in Atoms and Molecules. I did not read that, but Mm -hmm. it sounds cool. Max Planck, of course. Niels Bohr, of course. Mary Curie. We've got Hendrik Lorentz. Lorentz, Force, Lorentz Transformations. And Albert Einstein. And then we've got Paul Langevin. Langevin, I I know him as well. Mm-hmm. It says he developed the Langevin dynamics and the Langevin equation. He had a love affair with Mary Curie. Ooh. Ooh saucy. So you know why they were at the Solway conference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> writing letters. Doing more than writing letters. Yeah. Charles Eugene Guy. Charles Thomas Reese Wilson. Sir Owen Willens Richardson. And Richardson. that's the last one. Yeah, I remember Richardson. It says Richardson won the Nobel Prize in 1928 for his work on thermionic emission, which led to Richardson's law. I'm not familiar with him. Yeah, yeah. So, big heavy, heavy hitters. Heavy hitters. Yeah. I mean, if you literally open any textbook and as you advance, maybe even in the field of physics, you will hear these names. Most of them on there. Most of them. Yeah. Even chemistry. I mean, there, a lot of these were physicists and chemists just because, and mm-hmm. the overlap was because at the time, Chemistry and physics were kind of... Quantum's prime for that, right? At the intersection, yeah. Yeah, yeah. quantum stuff and chemistry just go really hand in hand. I mean, that's... What's the quantum version of chemistry in college called? Is that organic Uh, chemistry? No, I think it's called physical chemistry. Physical chemistry, okay. Quite literal on the the take here. But essentially, in physical chemistry, you cover... You cover orbitals. You're doing Schrodinger equation stuff. I remember Mm -hmm. uh, remember, uh, one of my chemistry friends was 
basically like, fuck this. I'm like, they're almost going to quit. Just because. Right. I didn't sign up to be a physicist. Damn it. They call it P they call it PCAM, but they're like physical. That's chemistry it. PCAM. Is, yeah. Yeah. They're just like, no, I hate this. Um, yeah. So if you're hard. any kind of scientist at the end of the day, you will always be slightly a physicist because <laughs> yeah. all roads lead to physics basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this, this, uh, Man, and and the impact that this had, I mean, you still have, they were having debates, you know, Bohr and Einstein in that conference Mm -hmm. kind of were at each other's throats, just interpreting, you know, we're still having these debates today. Yeah. Like the Copenhagen stuff. How do you interpret quantum mechanics? What is the right way to think about um, the data that we see, you know? Right, right. It's the whole quantum... um philosophy if you will bless you thank you yeah there were um for five roughly five days um in 1927 niels bohr and albert einstein were kind of there was a lot of famous quotes here too mm-hmm. discussions between um um god does both. not play dice That's <laughs> one of the ones that einstein did during yeah. this time and then I think Bohr said, stop trying to tell God what to do. <laughs> <laughs> or something along those lines. I probably made it sound less cool than it was. <clears throat> the Bohr-Einstein debate centered around um, the philosophy of science, essentially. Um, discussions with Einstein on the epistemological problems in atomic physics. Um, mm-hmm. The debates were centered around Bohr's Copenhagen interpretation, uh, which centered on his belief of complementarity that was valid in explaining nature um and their debates helped solidify quantum mechanics and um but they both they both would debate ad nauseum um you know and and einstein took it to his took it to the grave like his his uh i mean the most famous uh what was it the epr paradox he still kept at it the man was a madman the epr paradox yeah, where he was like the Einstein, Podolsky Rosen talking paradox. about the 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 sort of paradox that one would get with the Copenhagen interpretation. I f- can you enlighten me on what it is again? Yeah, if you have two two spatially separated or two um, time like separated um, systems, basically if you basically a, a signal cannot be sent fast enough to be. Oh, that's to do with entanglement. Yeah, but it's a complementarity thing, too. It's like a particle and wave kind of picture of quantum mechanics where you can't... Where it's almost like... It argues against locality, you know? Yeah, so it's the one that has to do with saying that objects are local and real, right? But we actually find out that objects are non-local and non-real, Non-local and well, well, the argument is that real. Well, it argues against realism. This idea that you know, which is arguing against non-locality. Things that are spatially separated can have some kind of correlation. Well, I thought the realism had to do with um, whether the particle existed. It always had oh, right, 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 exactly, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But the non-realism has to do with the superposition state, right, right, right. The particle, Which is a Copenhagen. Right, where yeah. the particle doesn't necessarily have a state. It's some mixture of uh, states. Right. And it only settles on a state once it's been interacted with. Yeah. And then, of course, locality has to do with 
the fact that everything is constrained by this um, light radius, light, uh, this radius of light, right? Where yeah. nothing can propagate faster than the speed of light so that you don't affect causality. But then that's not the case because entanglement, you know, shows you that there's some correlation between atoms or molecules or whatever your system is quantum there, system. your quantum system that can actually propagate some kind of change so correlated cor- there's some correlation between those two that happens r- regardless of whatever distance they're at right. so any arbitrary distance and it's not constrained by any light radius any yeah. any radius of light um that's one of these th- those are concepts that are very hard to get your mind around yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> unless you really uh have thought about it um right. so don't feel too bad if you don't understand what that means but um yeah, the 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 way that it, and the, I mean those are extremely valid things for Einstein to bring up. I mean, cuz the whole absurdity that you get when you can or at least that Einstein pointed out with uh uh a non-real thing is like mm. he he assumes the moon still exists whether you observe it or not. Right, Einstein's right. point was that yeah, do you he argued with Neil there's that was that, that's a good famous yeah, quote. Yeah. He's like you're telling me that if I don't look at the moon doesn't exist until I look at it. Right. And, and Bohr said something like essentially like, yeah. Yeah. And the fucked up part about it, even more fucked up part about it is that's right. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the reality we live in. Right. You know, we're living in a quake, uh, quake. <laughs> you know, a quake simulation where you know, <laughs> it's like only draws what's on the screen. <laughs> well, let, let's be, let, well, maybe, maybe no, that's a little bit misleading. It's a little bit disingenuous. Like yeah. That. But because this really has to do with when they say observe, they're trying to make it more romantic, but it really just is anything that's interacting. Like the moon has to have interactions in order right, for it matter. to have a collapsed wave function. Right. The matter within. Right, the matter right. M- matter needs to interact with its environment for it to take right. form. And of course, the moon is so huge; it's composed of so many particles, so it's going to have interactions regardless, right? Yeah, it's like um, there's it's highly unlikely that there won't be any interactions. Yeah, and and for those of you, to give context to people that don't know, and maybe you're a listener and you're like, yeah, what the hell is the Solvay conference and the the EPR or Einstein Podolsky Rosen paradox uh, was a paper that was introduced in 1935. As a as a debate between Bohr and uh, and um, and Einstein, centered around him particularly thinking that quantum mechanics was incomplete. But, oh, this is hidden variables. Right, right. He was also right, right. And and he was saying, can quantum mechan? This was the the title of the paper. Can quantum mechanical description uh, of physical reality be considered complete? Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just th- this paper still is talked about. To this day, we're mm-hmm. talking about studying the foundations of quantum mechanics, just based off of the debates that Bohr and Einstein had. Right, um, and it's also beautiful the resolution they came up with Bell's inequality, you know, right, demonstrating right, right. that you know reality is this problem has this under this underpinning of this underpinning of probabilistic mm-hmm. uh, or this probabilistic nature. I don't know a good way to say it, but yeah, it's like. Um, yeah, Einstein was saying that there's these hidden variables potentially that we just don't understand the full picture of quantum mechanics, Mm -hmm. you know, these particles are in a definite state, you know, and they are local, but for some reason we just can't see behind the curtain, but that's actually not true. And Benny Bell's inequality shows that through probability because since quantum mechanics is this probabilistic framework, it's actually crazy that 
in quantum mechanics probability, we get these different probabilities than if there was hidden variables. So the real picture of quantum mechanics has different probability distributions for how, when you measure a particle, how many times that particle will show up as, let's say, spin up or spin down or whatever it may be. If you're measuring whatever quantum whatever quantum property you're measuring that probability in the quantum world is different than what it would be if there was some hidden information right and you can actually prove that experimentally and you get this sine wave pattern depending on how you measure that system of spins it's a classic experiment that they do i think utilizing uh stern gerlach maybe or maybe not i don't remember what exactly the experiment is with that one, but it's basically a quantum system. Yeah, I think they, I think they you use should have this spins outcome. or something, right? But they, they show that they, you should have this outcome if you assume, um, if you assume uh, no hidden variables, it should be this like rather sharp sort of data that yeah. you get. But you get if you if you ever do like synthesizers, it's mm-hmm. like a triangular wave pattern. Mm-hmm. Is the is the hidden variable? Uh, way as the hidden variable graph you'll get versus the uh, sine wave that you'll get yeah. which is the real quantum picture yeah and i kind of want to give more um like i i know we talk about how important it is and everything after but i do want to like sit and pause in that in that time of these all these great people coming together mm-hmm. I, I do want to give a sense of what it was like um oh back then yeah like seeing these people um Come to this. Uh, come to this conference and right. debate about this. Here, here we go. I'm going to show you uh, some video, some rare footage of the time. Mm-hmm. Okay, here we go. The film opens with quick shots of Irvin Schrödinger and Niels Bohr. Auguste Picard of the University of Brussels follows, and then the camera refocuses on Schrödinger and Bohr. Irvin Schrödinger and Niels Bohr followed by Picard. Schrodinger, who developed wave mechanics, never agreed with Bohr and quantum mechanics, nor with Werner Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Solvay gave Heisenberg an opportunity to discuss his new theory. Here's French physicist Léon Brillouin, Hendrik Kramers, Bohr's former assistant, and Paul Dirac talking with Max Born, whose statistical interpretation of the wave function ended determinism in the atomic world. These men, Bohr, Heisenberg, Kramers, Dirac, and Born, together with Wolfgang Pauli, represent the founding fathers of quantum mechanics. On the other hand is Louis de Broglie, who wrote his dissertation on the wave nature of matter which Schrodinger used as the basis for wave mechanics. The owner of the camera, Irving Langmuir, is seen chatting briefly with Bohr. At Solvay, Bohr refined his thoughts on complementarity inspired with Einstein over the implications. Here he's with Paul Ehrenfest. Cromer's work in Copenhagen on dispersion theory was essential to the development of quantum mechanics. Langmuir, an American chemist at the GE lab in Schenectady, hence the camera, had recently broken his leg and appears to explain to Ehrenfest how he gets around. By 1927, Dirac in the middle had independently developed quantum mechanics and made other significant contributions, as had Wolfgang Pauli who formulated the exclusion principle. A lively Madame Curie, born in Pauli, working out a problem. Note the changed demeanor as the participants exit from the meeting 
except for the smiling William Lawrence Bragg and Peter Debye, Arthur Holly Compton, Owen Richardson, Max Bourne, Madame Curie, Hendrik Cromers, H. A. Lawrence, Paul Langevin, Albert Einstein, whose famous response to Bourne and the statistical interpretation of the wave function was, God does not play dice. Bohr, Planck, Pauli, and Belgian soldiers, a portentous conclusion. Yeah, hmm. this is five days of them Badass. sitting in sitting in a conference hall, or sitting in a hall, presumably. Mm. Um, I think it's crazy how we lived during a time. How we were alive when Paul Dirac was still alive. Yeah, I know. It's fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't I, think about that, but. Like we I, literally could have met Paul Dirac. Sad that we didn't. I know. Okay, so they were talking about Max Born and how, how he said that his contribution in 1926 when he proposed that that quantum mechanics are better understood as a probability without any cause any causality. And that, you know, Einstein was kind of like the, the guy there that was more of like taking the oppositional view. Mm-hmm. Of that well, was being developed. Schrodinger didn't like it either. either. Right, Schrodinger famously didn't, but and and he's the one who came up with the, you know, like the most important quantum equation. <laughs> but also the most most colloquially known example of the like quantum mechanics. Oh yeah, the Schrodinger's cat is the classic, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's what everybody repeats who doesn't even know anything about quantum mechanics. <laughs> right. So the cat is dead and alive. Right. Um, it's like, um, uh, <laughs> I just want to. I just want to retire that example almost entirely. Yeah, now. it's just so. Yeah, Stern Gerlach is probably a better one. Yeah, that's that should be more mainstream, huh? That should, yeah. But uh, but I want to say that um, in 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 those five days, you know, we need to, we need to have more of this because um, in those five days, you have so many. You know, you have a lot of famous. You just have so much um, controversy and like. Uh, debate that that is still i mean we we get the schrodinger uh, uh cat example you know both einstein and schrodinger rejected the interpretation of uh, a renunciation they they basically said causality is like our our primary um our totem our principle of of like realism and it was rejected at the time um well not realism i'd say of local Mm-hmm. Localism, <laughs> localism, yeah, yeah. Because causality has to do with speed of light, right? And being local means that you're you're within that radius of light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even I mean, they they debated a lot. I mean, Heisenberg had this. Uh, he would have disputes with Bohr that you know Heisenberg had a matrix mechanic view. Essentially, like he introduced, he he sought that linear algebra was compatible with. Um, sort of um at explaining a lot of the the mechanics, mechanics of yeah yeah interesting so heisenberg was the guy yeah yeah was was uh and he noted that it was not compatible with Schro- the schrodinger equation um and he was just like what the fuck but they kind mm-hmm. of you know we kind of live with this like you know sometimes we use the schrodinger models but in most advanced cases we use the heisenberg picture more than anything right right but the schrodinger stuff we still um 
It's, I mean, sh- I thought it was compatible because we just, it's like short, Schrodinger stuff. It's toy model stuff, though, don't you think? The Schrodinger stuff? Like, you know, we deal with particles in a box, which is a good yeah. approximation. But I mean, like, what do you mean that matrix matrix math, like linear algebra, is not compatible with the Schrodinger picture? Because the Dirac notation, um, the eigenstates, let's say, but that's, are but, matrix matrices usually. Right, right. So it is compatible, isn't it? No, but Dirac notation is... Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. At the time, I guess they didn't see Yeah, the they, I think they probably just didn't see the connection back then. Right. Because Dirac notation, I think, is what unified it. Because right. Dirac like showed that you can do like these outer products and stuff with these bracket notation and right, right, right. all this stuff, and then they became compatible. Yeah. So maybe at one point it wasn't compatible, if that's what you're reading. Yeah, I don't think they saw the... The connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, because, I mean, for, for clarification, the Schrodinger equation is... is it's calculus. It's a, it's a, it's right. a second, it's a second order differential equation. It's a right, it's, and you're not. It's not obvious to even invoke matrices. Matrices a lot of times, right? No, right. Well, that's why. But that's what I'm saying. Like, what made it more accessible was matrix mechanics. Was right, like right. people doing order of operations and yeah. uh, what is it? Row reduction, <laughs> right? <laughs> and just seeing that you can like have multiple, like you can get the multiple. Um, different uh, probabilities for each uh, eigenstate. Say that again. Or let me say so. The probabilities would uh, would be associated with the eigenvalues. Right, 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 right. So right, the, and then the eigenvalues would be in the matrix, and then each eigenstate might have its own eigenvalue. Yeah. So what's so it's more, like a system of equations in some sense. Right. Exactly. And I think I think what made Heis- the Heisenberg picture more accessible to scientists was because you know, in the lab, you typically measure or you can measure energy. You know what I mean? So your data mm, looks like... Well, you can't measure directly. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, well, I'm so saying you got to be like, careful. Okay, yeah. Let me... Because let me, yeah, what more, is energy, <laughs> right? You right. Can, you, can, you can measure like a frequency, which is right, related right, right, to energy. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I'm saying you. it's more clear to just put these values into some kind of data column thing mm-hmm. and manipulate your data using linear algebra yeah as opposed to schrodinger's i think picture is a lot more uh, gives a lot more insight into the physics i think because it's yeah right don't you think like it it just depends but yeah i guess you're focusing more on the calculus using usually in schrodinger's picture but but no, but Schrodinger- i don't know it's like because they're both so linked for me because you know we're living in a time where they're just completely all unified in some sense. Like mm. I flip between matrix math and then Dirac notation mm. so seamlessly. Like I don't mm. even think of them as separate. I so see. it's hard for me to like even. Well, I'm talking about like e. Yeah, I guess I guess we. Yeah. All kind of, <laughs> I was saying like energy. Um, you know the 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 energy times the um the wave function is equal to the Hamiltonian times mm-hmm. the wave function. So I don't know. But with the Hamiltonian, the Hamiltonian's a matrix, right? It can be, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's an operator, and then operators are typically matrices, so it's yeah. like, yeah, I, I, I unify that I don't, picture. Yeah, I see, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you Unless see you have maybe one eigenstate, but then if you have one eigenstate, that's almost like not even quantum, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because it's the matter, it's usually the, the, the different number of eigenstates you have yeah. have an associated probability, and then it yeah. becomes quantum. Yeah, so, so I guess I, not one eigenstate. I'm sorry, one eigenvalue. I'll say, my yeah, bad. Yeah, 
So I kind of want to center the conversation more about like, I don't, I don't think we have many of these anymore. What? Oh, like a Solvay type. Yeah. I can't speak on that because I am not that in tune like in the. I mean, we're not, we're not, we never got to reach the level of professors, so we right. don't really know what they really do. We know they go yeah. to APS and whatnot, but then APS is like that's American Physical Society. That's like the big conference for, for all mm-hmm. physicists. And usually what that is is like a lecture and they just talk about whatever they just discovered or whatever yeah. they think is really cool. Um, but I guess you're saying like there's no like real debate style like big prominent scientists like no, to me that, it out. No, to me the, the, what makes the 1927 conference so important and why it's in our textbooks and everything is because that was the first con- uh, conference – well, maybe not the first, but may- maybe the first time we had all these big minds tackling the foundations, mm-hmm. uh, you know, r- really kind of like debating things. And, and you know, maybe in the construction, it, they were kind of, how would you say, formulating what what the prevailing sort of narrative is about this subject. But mm-hmm. I don't know if we have that. I don't know if we have those big things anymore. I don't know if like you could invite someone like say Juan Maldacena or Leonard Susskind, these kinds of big dudes that know quantum mechanics, you know, they're maybe studying the intersection between quantum gravity. I mean, yeah, like yeah, studying well, now something. it's all about quantum field theory and then rel- right. general relativity. I don't know if we're having the same debates centered around that as much. Maybe not. I'm not really familiar Let's get the Eigen Bros on it. Let's be. <laughs> we need to host our own conference. Yeah, well, we're in. <laughs> Solvay 2022. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, I'm, I'm, a quick Google search of quantum gravity um, conferences, mm-hmm. I'm sure it's going to be laden with a bunch of. Uh, quantum yeah. gravity people. Maybe that's also the problem is that physics is just too. Um, everybody resides in their own mountaintops these days because it's just so deep. That you can't really do that anymore, because like imagine like a condensed matter physicist trying to go to a quantum gravity con- uh, not concert um, conference, mm-hmm. they're gonna be like, "What the fuck are any of you guys talking about?" <laughs> <laughs> it's just physics is so um, yeah. What do you call it? Isolated yeah. by specialization now. It's just like, oh, you're saying there was more intersection? Yeah, because those guys were doing it all back then, kind of yeah. in some sense. Like yeah. nowadays, it's like, who the hell could just talk about? cross-disciplinary like that like yeah imagine trying to like talk about uh yeah just imagine a condensed matter like imagine the top condensed matter physicist trying to talk about theories of everything and quantum mm-hmm. gravity hits hits higgs boson stuff yeah they're just gonna be out of their element they're gonna be like um okay <laughs> <laughs> i guess it's legit yeah <laughs> well let me let me just say this so the the most famous one or if you Google it, the, the first result you'll get is the International Conference on Quantum Gravity and String Theory. And that lasts two days, 10th through 11th, 2020, mm. Um So then that would be the modern, in, uh, the modern version. Yeah, but it's to me, it's not like hopefully you would see. I would think that you would see people that are really big, but. But there almost needs to be like you need to. I would love to see like the big minds, the galaxy brains of today. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like we're we're forcing them to be in a room together. But would they talk about the same subject, or would they just talk physics? In we general? give the, that's the same thing. We give them like twelve papers or something, and it's like here we're all read on the same thing. But that's where I'm like I'm not sure it would work 
because Ed Witten, you know, string theorist, may not have the same depth of knowledge as, like, I don't know who's one of the prominent string theory uh, guys. String, uh, no, like other other fields. Like, I guess it works when you're in the field of like string theory slash high energy. Mm-hmm. Because that's more in line with theories of everything. But if you're talking like condensed matter or ast- astronomy guys, then like, then they're kind of out of the conversation. Yeah, but I mean that, that's kind of how it was then too, right? Don't you think? Like people were out of their. I, I guess mean, you're right. You know what I mean. So like, then I guess it's really just the high energy slash the like the theoretical high energy people. Then that's kind of where it's at. But you also need to have an intersection of experimentalists. I think. Okay, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you need to have... Imagine having... But then it's... it's You're really just talking to, like, a high-energy conference, then. No, I mean, there would <laughs> there would have to be, like, some leading people. I would love to have some quantum information people there. Like, you know... Okay, that's, like, it's getting into a different conversation, then. Yeah, because I think you need to talk about the foundations of quantum mechanics with the people that, you know... I think string theory is a little bit out there, but, like, if... Let's say you're trying to tackle... Mm-hmm. quantum gravity or, or some important topic or mm-hmm. um so you're saying get people to talk about quantum gravity so then invite people who have specialization at the deepest levels of quantum and the deepest levels of general general relativity yeah okay that's put them in a room idea. together and see what happens right right we should host that conference <laughs> the eigen bros uh the eigen bros it presents it would be it would kind yeah of be. it would devolve into a <laughs> Well, in this little video, if you watch in the video, I think who was it? There was a there was one guy who like he was just like being like he lose character. Yeah, he, I don't know who it was, but he stuck his tongue out. He was like, ah. it was funny. Yeah, um, I'm sure they got down. Yeah, I mean, look, they debated for a little. There were some people that were just like they could have, they essentially could have done a what is this called? Hang loose. <laughs> Hang loose. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, scientists are not, you know, I think, I think we need to have more rock star type things like this. Even, the, even a version of that with like, maybe not the mega minds, but if you had like Sean Carroll and Brian Green and. Right. And maybe Imagine even making Michio it an Kaku event, right? and Neil deGrasse Tyson. That'd be a cool ass event to see. I think they've yeah. done that, but the format still wasn't as cool. It was kind of like a stage presentation for the audience. Yeah. That would still be an interesting thing to watch. It would be interesting to watch, but I think it would. I would love to have it where it's like you have a lot of debate. Mm-hmm. You have a lot. I would of love debate. to see one with Ed Witten and like Cien Yang, and like who else? And like um, maybe Leonard Susskind. I don't know what his field is. Yeah. Um, he's a uh, uh, quantum gravity. Okay. Yeah. Maldus Senna, Nima Arkani Ahmed. Um. Yeah, I think that'd be just a lot cool. of interesting. Or maybe minds. even like throw in guys like Peter Shore. Yeah, some really know. famous experimentalists. Yeah, Lord, he's he, well, he's a computer science physicist guy. Yeah, he made the Shore's algorithm right. Um, maybe like Grover, you know, people who just have really good knowledge on like how quantum systems work. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, that would yeah. be kind of cool. Yeah, just to see what comes out. I guess it's like, Twitter. <laughs> no, I don't think there's. I, I I don't think that's like. That's not really. I think yeah, it's I'm different when you have. Pe- yeah, I think it's different <laughs> when you have people like in a. In a room, you're almost forcing them to debate and right. talk about something. It's like you gotta, 
like hash but it out. But what would be the topic then? What do you think would be some good topics to discuss? Let's say you were talking about how uh, to approach quantum gravity. Yeah, maybe like methods, methods to methods in approaching. Maybe like quantum foundation. I feel like maybe. the guys like Peter Shore and Grover would be left out though because they don't know. Well, I mean, I it would be interesting would to see how, how they would tackle it. Yeah, probably from some kind of weird computer science, yeah, thing, like yeah, Wolfram yeah. or something. Yeah, I mean, but, but this is, these are kind of the things that you, if it's a, if it's a left angle, if it's like a, a an angle that hasn't been, you know what I mean? Like you need yeah, to yeah. have these people, left field kind of thing, just to kind of, you know, you yeah. know, we need to have more outside the box kind of thinking. Yeah, it'd be a cool idea. Yeah. I don't know how productive it would be because I think those problem, these problems today are just so, so deep now. Yeah. I don't know how. They could do it, but maybe there's inspiration that could be gained, right? But for sure. But to me, the 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 philosophy that Solvay had was like, I'm a lover of science. I I yeah, love yeah. the I love the the discovery that's going on and the the topics that are centered around this. I'm going to bring the world's best minds. I see. Do you and know? regardless, the world's best minds will come up with some interesting questions and right. debate topics and whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a cool idea. We need to have that exploration mentality back. This is what I'm Maybe we can organize it for real. <laughs> Dude, that would be awesome. I mean, imagine if we were like, we were like, hey, we just let's- need more clout though. I don't even think you need that. I think you could sort of position yourself as like, I'm going to make, we're going to make, we're trying not to make the fire fest of science, but, <laughs> you know, but we want to like- Right. I guess if we really wanted to, because all you'd have to do is just find a space that everybody, in a space and a time, right? Right. That's it. And if you can somehow organize- A conference. Yeah, organize yeah. a conference in advance enough- because these people are real busy, yeah, and they had trust enough in you that they're like, okay, this could be interesting, and you, yeah. you know, had some people to confirm that they would be there. Like if Edwin was there, you would automatically their, just sell that as like Edwin's coming. What's you know? their asking price? It's you know, and a lot of it, I think you could do it through crowdfunding too. Imagine if you convinced enough people, like, oh, well, I wouldn't want to even do it for a price. They'd have to do it for the love of science. Oh, know? really? Yeah, because that would, would see, just be so hard. Well, I would try to crowdfund it. So you, you would want I mean? to pay them to come. I think they kind of yeah. cheapened the event a little bit. Because now well, they're just, they okay, can just well, be there for the check. Okay, how about know? this? How about this? You you say, you know, room and board paid. That could be reasonable. Like everything, yeah. everything, like every, the living expenses while you're there. That could be reasonable. Paid. Yeah. You know. Because I feel like scientists, they would just do it for the love of the game anyway. But yeah. the room and board paid would definitely be a massive... Um, yeah. Per, but that's what I'm saying. Sure. Like, like if you could crowdfund something like this so that mm-hmm. you can get these great minds in the same room to talk about topics that are like, uh, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. We, we need that. I think we, we need that. I think it's a cool idea. Yeah. Let's hey, if it. y'all like the idea, please let us know. <laughs> like, I, look, for me, I'd be down to like, to just start a GoFundMe and just put it out there and just be like, let's see if people are interested. Right. And just have the list of people we want, the all-star list. Yeah. That'd be cool. Or maybe have some have some ideas, maybe crowd yeah. first crowdsourced big big conference yep. like this. Solvay twenty twenty. Yeah. Twenty twenty two. I'd be down. It's giving me Coney twenty twelve vibes. But let's bring back the the this this exploration mm-hmm. aspect of bringing great minds together. Indeed. I think that's our time. Let's yeah, man. uh I guess for the comments, guys, who would you want at the um 2022 Solvay, or let's just say future Solvay, because I think 2022 is a little bit too ambitious. Yeah, (laughs) let's say yeah, let's say the uh, the Solvay of the new millennium. Eigenbros presents. Eigenbros presents Solvay conference. Yeah, 
<laughs> so what do you think? Leave it on the comments below and make yeah. sure to like and share and subscribe if you Indeed. haven't already. And then guys, check out eigenbros.com, eigenbros on Instagram, eigenbros on Twitter, eigenbros2 on TikTok. And then patrons, guys, thank you once again. Guys, if you want to be in our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash eigenbros. You know, we just ask for $1. You get a, access to 30-minute podcasts every week and also mm -hmm. the Discord. I think it's a pretty good deal. I think that's it. Yeah, it's pretty good. And I think that's it. That's it. All right. See you later. Later, guys.